Welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. I'm Brian Wilson from Dallas, Texas. And I'm Jeff in Annapolis, Maryland. And I'm Lisa in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, today we're going to be reading and talking about Shakespeare's Coriolanus. And Jeff's going to walk us through a little overview of the play and start us off with our opening question. Yeah, thanks, Brian. So this is a story of the Roman Republic. And uh, Shakespeare's sources were probably Plutarch and also maybe Livy, uh, both of whom tell the story of Coriolanus in their own way. Uh, but basically what's going on is that uh, war is at war. I'm sorry, Rome is at <laughs> war, uh, both with itself and with um, an enemy power called the Volscians. Uh, what's happening in Rome is that there's a famine and uh, the nobles and the plebs uh, are fighting with one another over food. Um, and at the same time, Rome's enemies, including these Volscians, are threatening from outside. So what happens in this context is a hero um, uh, named Martius uh, emerges and distinguishes himself in a battle with the Volscians in this city called uh, Coriolis. And for his great uh, heroism, he basically charges into a city and is trapped in there when the gates close by himself, uh, taking on um, all the defenders single-handedly. For that great victory, uh, he earns the surname Coriolanus. And subsequently, the question arises, should he be um, appointed a, a consul for Rome? And typically what has to happen is both the patricians, the nobles, and the plebeians, uh, who are led by um, some officials called tribunes, have to approve this choice. And this is where things get tricky for Coriolanus, because he does not love the plebeians. In fact, he despises them. And so what happens in short order is uh, he speaks his mind about the plebs, and they rise up against him, encouraged by the tribunes. Uh, he is exiled from Rome. Uh, he leaves Rome and heads to uh, his adversaries, uh, and especially this enemy general whom he admires as a great fighter named Aufidius. He defects to the enemy's side, to the Volsces' side, and uh, wages war with Aufidius against Rome. Uh, once the two of them have combined, uh, they're unstoppable, and Coriolanus is at the gates of Rome, and he's about to put it uh, to the torch to burn it completely. Uh, various embassies from Rome come and appeal to him. He rejects them all until his mother, his wife, and his child show up, and they beg him, please spare Rome. Uh, he's finally moved, and he does so. But then he returns uh, with Aufidius to the Volsces, and they... Um, uh, through some uh, kind of machinations on Ophidius's part, and chiefly through the um, support of the outraged people, uh, kill him. And so that's the end of Coriolanus and the tragedy of Coriolanus. Now, uh, this story interests me from the military perspective because it seems to me to have a lot to do with civil-military relations and with the question of, um, you know, how do uh, people with military virtues relate to the civilians that they work with, the civilians that they protect. And uh, this is something that Plutarch points out in his uh, version of the Coriolanus story. He says, well, um, Rome was distinguished at the time because they thought that military virtue was the whole of virtue. 
And so I thought there were, you know, really three things in this story that we could talk about that were really interesting to me, and we'll probably figure out other things as well. Um, first, why does Coriolanus, uh, why is he not able to lie to the people and tell him that he loves them? Uh, his, his mother suggests to him that this would be a way for him to get elected consul uh, if he just put on a brave face and was diplomatic. Uh, he seems ultimately unable to do that. Um, second, once he's banished, why does he defect to his enemies? Um, one of the things he says when he's banished is he says, uh, there's a world elsewhere, and it looks like he might go and do something else, like go paint or something like that. But instead, no, he's back um, teaming up with his enemy Ophidius and plotting against Rome. And then finally, the big question is always, well, why does Coriolanus succumb at the end to the embassy from his wife, his mother, and his child. Um, he knows that this is very likely going to lead to his death, and yet he decides that he has to give in to their entreaties and spare Rome, and then return with Aufidius to his, um, uh, his current allies, the Volskes, and uh, submit to whatever they're going to do with him. So these are the three things that, um, that puzzle me about the play, and I thought it would be great if we could talk about each of them. What do you all think? Sounds good. Good. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to unwrap there. I mean, maybe something that is is the recurrent theme about all of those is finding your place, uh, you know, and that kind of comes to the civil-military relationship thing. Um, you know, where is your place in society, whether it's the military society or the civilian society? And what is, what is it about Coriolanus that he needs to join a group, he needs to be a part of a group, but that his loyalties can kind of fluctuate so much in the course of the play? Yeah. Yeah, that question about Coriolanus's place, I think, is connected to the business about his name. Uh, here's a guy who starts out with a name that more or less means war, Martius, right? Then he gets given a name uh, that is the name of a place that he has sacked, right? A place where he's killed many enemies. And at the end, uh, one of the things that Ophidius does to get under his skin is he deprives him of this name Coriolanus and calls him Martius again, which gets him very upset. Um, but there's some question as to who this guy is exactly. Where does he belong and why? So yeah, I think that question about belonging really is an important question in the play. I find in general, and maybe maybe I've never found an exception to this, that in Shakespeare plays, act one, scene one is the place to look to see what Shakespeare's interested in exploring. And I think it there's a speech there that speaks to Jeff's question, uh, the famous stomach speech, right? Um, yeah. Right before uh, Coriolanus comes upon the people, his friend Menenius tries to confront the people and to convince them that they are wrong to accuse the senators the way that they do. And he makes the claim that the state, Rome, is, is like a body and the Senate is like, is like the stomach. Um, that might be worth going through because one might wonder as we as we work through the analogy, what part Coriolanus 
might have um, with respect to the body, particularly since, as, as Jeff noted, uh, his name changes. And when once he's crossed over to the other side, one of his men who first goes to try to make an embassy to him says he seemed as a kind of nothing. Right. So, yeah. so identity where he belongs in the city, as Brian said, seems very important. Um, I wonder if we should just read that speech at one one thirty two. That be. Yeah, yeah, I'd be I'd be glad to read that. Um, it's a little tricky because Menenius gets interrupted a couple times, and so I'll jump ahead to skip the interruptions and just try to give the bulk of what he says. Great. Um, but so uh, Menenius and uh, and Coriolanus are um, uh, confronting a mob of citizens who want corn. They want food. And they want to kill Coriolanus, who they know is an, is an opponent of their desires. And Menenius is trying to placate them, and this is what he says. There was a time when all the body's members rebelled against the belly, thus accused it, that only like a gulf did it remain in the midst of the body, idle and unactive, still coveting the viand, never bearing like labor with the rest, where the other instruments did see and hear, devise, instruct, walk, feel, and mutually participate, did minister unto the appetite and affection common of the whole body. The belly answered, and then there's an interruption, right? The first citizen is very eager to hear what the belly has to say for himself. And they go back and forth a little bit, but finally Menenius continues, Note me this, good friend, your most grave belly was deliberate not rash like his accusers, and thus answered, True it is, my incorporate friends, quoth he, that I receive the general food at first which you do live upon, and fit it is because I am the storehouse and the shop of the whole body. But if you do remember, I send it through the rivers of your blood, even to the court, the heart, to the seat of the brain, and through the cranks and offices of man, the strongest nerves and small inferior veins from me receive that natural competency whereby they live. And through that all at once, you, my good friends, this says the belly, mark me, and there's a little more interruption. And then uh, he concludes, the senators of Rome are this good belly, and you the mutinous members... For examine their counsels and their cares, digest things rightly, touching the wheel of the common. You shall find no public benefit which you receive, but it proceeds or comes from them to you, and in no way from yourselves. So that's the main thrust. Benefits in Rome come from the Senate. They do not come from the people. And we should point out that although the people are hungry, and that's obviously a serious thing, um, Coriolanus and Menenius both point out that that's not because the senators are living off the people. The whole city is, in fact, suffering. So the people are presented as um, unreasonable. And so when Coriolanus comes into the scene, that's one of his main accusations. So I was interested, Brian, in your earlier uh, observation that he his loyalties seem to shift because his claim is that the people are completely fickle and irrational, whereas he says, I am constant. Um, so we might factor that into thinking about who or what he is in himself and with respect to the city. Yeah, there's a question of kind of 
first mover or causation here. Mm-hmm. You know, the other interpretation that you can have of the belly, and I'm ripping this off of something that I was just glancing at before the reading that's outside of the reading, is that the stomach doesn't do anything. <laughs> it just it just hangs out, you know. <clears throat> it it gets fed and it does nothing else, mm-hmm. you know. Um whereas, you know, the arms, the legs, the brain, you know, the heart are all kind of the things at work in the body, Mm -hmm. but the stomach just kind of hangs out and gets first dibs on everything. Mm -hmm. So there's that question of causation and like primary mover regarding the Senate. And, you know, we we kind of talked about before, like what is Coriolanus's role? What part does he play? Um, and that comes up a couple times, right? There's, there's a lot, there's the body parts, uh, throughout are, are kind of a recurring theme of, you know, the foot, the arm, the, you know, different parts of the body. And so trying to pin down exactly, you know, if the Senate, if Meninius is, you know, um, if Meninius's uh, metaphor is true that the Senate is the stomach, I guess, you know, what, it, what are the, what does that leave for the people and what does that leave for Coriolanus? Yeah. Yeah, I think Lisa's instinct that, um, or it's, I guess it's even a kind of interpretive principle that the beginning of the play announces the theme is right. And I just add uh, one thing to the, the pot that we're stirring right now, which is that um, if you look at the beginning, the very beginning, what happens is uh, the people resolve to kill Coriolanus, and then the second citizen says one word more, right? And then there's this deliberation and it's a deliberation that Menenius contributes to when he arrives, right? And then finally, when Coriolanus arrives, we learn that force is dispersing the citizens. And so what's tied up in this question of the body versus the members is um, the role of, of force versus the role of words. What keeps the body together? Is it um, forcing it to be together or is it some kind of talking? And at least at the beginning, it looks like it's force, right? Menenius can talk and talk, but he gets interrupted. It's not clear he persuades people. What finally gets them to go home is Coriolanus saying, uh, I'm going to chop you all up if you don't go home. And sure enough, they go home. Uh, that's how things start, but it's not clear that uh, that's how things end. In other words, it's not clear that Coriolanus's way, which is chiefly not a way of words, right, is uh, sufficient to keep the body politic together. Yeah, I would say, too, the Act 1, Scene 1 highlights, uh, in particular, this problem, that the people do seem to be fickle. They can be manipulated, and they are manipulated by the tribunes later on who are sort of vile human beings. Um, you get this this interjection by Menenius, who does seem to be most reasonable. And then when Coriolanus shows up, um, you see the other problem that is that there's a split between the people and Coriolanus, and yet they seem to need each other. Uh, Coriolanus actually thinks that um, people who deserve uh, greatness will actually seek to be hated by the people because the, because uh, the people are naturally disposed to hate excellence, although also to want to use it. So I think that's a problem that's explored throughout the play, which might speak partly to Jeff's question about why Coriolanus can't act differently. It looks like his excellence, what he does, um, what he is as this warrior, uh, involves being incapable of compromising. That's how he understands himself, and he thinks that's noble. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's press on that a little bit, because I do think that's one of the main... um 
contentions or problems of the play, and I do think uh, it uh, it gets developed later on. Uh, Act three, scene two, is one place. Um, so yeah, it looks like Coriolanus associates um, his military virtue with uh, saying what he thinks. Let's put it that way, right? And that's a reasonable connection to make, right? Because uh, when you lie, you're a coward, right? The only reason really to lie is because you're afraid of the consequences of telling the truth. And so if you're a courageous person who's afraid of no consequences, then of course you'll always tell the truth, right? But his mother in, uh, I think it's Act 3, Scene 2, uh, tries to persuade him that in war you lie all the time. It's completely acceptable to tell the enemy, oh, no, I'm not going to attack the city, and then to attack it. So what's the problem, Coriolanus? You're a warrior. Deception is part of war. Um, go ahead and deceive the people, just like you would deceive an enemy. right? That's a pretty um, powerful argument, isn't it, against Coriolanus's understanding of the connection between uh, truth-telling and military virtue? Well, his truth-telling seems to be something that we can't he can't stop it right he can't really turn it off like there's an interesting part in act one scene nine um when he kind of returns to the roman camp and is being heralded by the troops and he's standing by as other generals and the troops are uh, this is around 40 um and Cominius, who's one of his you know, fellow generals, offers him treasure from, from Volsci, right? And Marcius says, I thank you, general, but cannot make my heart consent to take a bribe to pay my sword. I do refuse it and stand upon my common part with those that have beheld the doing. And he says this in front of the troops, and the troops you know, begin to chant, Martius, Martius. They cast up their caps and lances. At least that's my stage direction in this version. And then Martius goes on. May these same instruments which you profane never sound more. Which, which seems to me like he's like, shut up. <laughs> shut up, troops. Like, don't, don't. He's like, I don't want bribes and I don't want cheers. Uh, when drums and trumpets shall I the field prove flatterers, let's courts and cities be made all the false face soothing. When steel grows soft as the parasite's silk, let him be made a coverture for the wars. No more, I say, for that I have not washed my nose that bled or foiled some debile wretch. With without note, here's many else have done. You shout me forth in acclamations hyperbolic, as if I love my little should be dieted and praise sauced with lies. What I mean, so he doesn't want respect from the plebes, from the common people, and he's willing to fight them just to get them to shut up, even if they have a, you know, possibly correct version of the truth that the noblemen are hoarding all the corn and, and they have nothing. And then after a great military victory, he doesn't want any of the spoils and he doesn't want any of the praise. So what, what does he want? What, what is his ideal? We cycle back a little bit, uh, which I think will help with Brian's question. It's possible and I suspect likely that Coriolanus doesn't like lying simply. But I think in particular what's highlighted here is he doesn't like the lying involved with flattery. So he doesn't want to debase himself. Um, he doesn't want to show his wounds to the people, although, of course, that's how to manipulate the many. He finds that repulsive. And that um, disinclination to flatter seems to be connected with another important attribute, which is a sense of shame that he has, a, he has a sense that there are some things that 
just ought not to be shown. They're precious. And I think actually his wife represents that when he says, you are my silence, um, which I think makes him look more interesting than some might think initially. That is, he's a, he's a lion, right? He's this incredible fighter. He's very fierce. Um, and there's a kind of, I think, necessary rigidity to being that kind of person. And yet, it's not as though he doesn't have actually a very sensitive other side. I would argue he argue, he might be the most sensitive person in the play, insofar as he has this unusual relationship with his wife. Um, so once the rigidity cracks, when that happens which I think happens when you get the, the convoy of women, the embassy of women at the end, um, is a disaster, right, for him. Yeah, so the, let's think a little bit about the connection between this sensitivity and the, and the rigidity. And if I'm following it, something like this. Um, it's not just that to tell a lie um, is a kind of admission of cowardice and he prides himself on being courageous. Um, it's also that to say, to, to allow yourself to be praised, even if the praise is true, or to allow yourself to be rewarded for your excellence uh, in military virtue, for your great uh, warfighting capability, is to open the door to the charge that you're doing it for those things. And uh, his sensitivity and his rigidity go hand in hand because he's absolutely unwilling to open the door to the possibility that these are mercenary virtues. In other words, there's some sort of quid pro quo. So um, he might uh, not want praise, say, from his general or his soldiers, because that implies that he needs something from them. But it, it's probably more strongly that he doesn't want these things, because to accept them at least raises the possibility, maybe even for him himself, right, that they're the, they're the reason he did the, uh, the heroic things. And he just has, he does not want to open that door. Um, so you could see his rigidity and his sensitivity as uh, going hand in hand and being a result of having the highest uh, respect for the virtue that he embodies, right? This is not a mercenary virtue. I'm not someone who sells himself to the highest bidder, right? And that makes it all the more uh, tragic that he does end up fighting for his enemies. Well then, yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Like, what what is his virtue? What is the heroic ideal that he's trying to kind of embody? I mean, if if he was killed by the Romans, I mean, if, if he was, if somehow his allegiance to Rome was un, unshaken, uh, and, you know, accepted, oh, I mean, he, he kind of accepts death from the Volscians, but if, if his virtue is constant, which I'm not sure it is, like what, what is, what is the virtue or the heroic ideal that he ascribes to? Might have some confusion, uh, that runs along the lines Jeff was suggesting that is a military type, uh, to be, to be virtuous means not to be mercenary, right? Not to be a paid fighter. I'm not sure that uh, Shakespeare actually does criticize Coriolanus. It's possible that it's just the, the a certain type of human being that a city needs, but sort of in the wrong time and certainly asked to do something that 
that he shouldn't that he couldn't do and maybe people should have known that that human type can't do that um but let's look at two ways to brian's question what does he want he defines himself it looks like in part against the many that is the farther removed he is from them the more they hate him um, the more he seems to confirm for himself his own excellence and and then there's also his enemy right um Alphidius, a lot could be said about their relationship, but they envy each other is how it's put. There's a kind of um, warrior respect for the enemy. They hate each other, but he also, I think, wants to be acknowledged by that man. Right? That, so you get these two poles, and what seems to be lacking is maybe maybe Rome or the middle. Um, I'll add one more thing, which, I, which might flesh out Brian's question. We can work on it a bit. But there are at least two comparisons between him and Hector. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, one image that comes up repeatedly in others' descriptions of Coriolanus is uh, that he's some kind of machine, right? Uh, there's at one point the image of um, the time, uh, the, the dying cries of men are timed according to his arm going up and down. This is one thing I think that's said in praise of him, if I remember correctly, by Cominius. Um, but it looks like uh, you know, there could be all sorts of things folded into that wish to be a machine, but not to feel uh, fear for your person seems to be part of it. Um, not to feel like you're dependent on causes outside of you seems to be part of it. Um, and that might be connected with this way that Lise was mentioning. He really distinguishes himself from the people. Uh, the people are changeable. They're fickle. And why are they fickle? Well, um, they uh, go the way the wind blows, right? They're subject to external causes. Um, if Coriolanus wants to be constant, one of the best ways to do that is to be entirely self-determining, yeah. right? In other words, not to be open at all. Sorry, go ahead, Lisa. Well, I was going to say, you, what you uh, just noted sparked a thought in me, which is, yes, the people are fickle. They're not attractive in this play. They're blown by the wind. But you remind me that um, in that Act 1, Scene 1, Coriolanus claims that unless there's war, he's superfluous. So in a way, uh, Jeff, he is subject to outside causes because I, I really think that's he understands himself as a fighter. And so if he's not fighting, he doesn't know what to do with himself. Um, and that might tie quite nicely back to our, our just wondering about how this is relevant to military generally, right? I think uh, there there is that sense that you, you get trained for something, it's very intense, you're a certain type of person. And then if that activity isn't ongoing, um, I think it can be a struggle to know how you might fit into the people who you've been trained to protect and therefore to think of in some way as uh, not your equals, at least as a warrior. That's a, perhaps a difficult uh, line to walk. Right. It does look like he's effective in uh, domestic policing, if I can put it that way, or at least in mob dispersal. <laughs> but uh, when it comes to the question of talking with the people that he's sworn to protect, he's not very effective at all. Yeah. Right. If anything, it looks like he, he generally, um, not always, but generally makes things worse. Yeah. So maybe we could... Um see if this sounds right to you, encapsulate what we're doing so far and say, Coriolanus seems particularly well suited for love and war. And the, and the, and the middle range is not so present. And that seems more of a Achilles 
thing, right? Um, he can love Briseis, uh, and he can, you know, attack Troy. But outside of that, it's very difficult. And from my recollection of the Iliad, you know, Hector is more of a, why are we doing this? You know, I have to do it, but I kind of just like to hang out here with my wife and my kid uh, and not do it. There's a reticence there. But Achilles is more, this is what I'm groomed for. This is what I'm built for. This is, I can't even control it. It's what I'm meant to do. Um, yeah, th this is interesting to me because it is pointing in a slightly different direction from the one I was thinking in. And so maybe if we can take this apart and just scrutinize the pieces for a second. Um, so yeah, the comparison with Achilles seems like one way to go. And maybe the notion that he's like a machine would point in that direction, right? In the Iliad, Achilles' armor seems almost as effective as Achilles himself, right? You know, regardless of who's filling it out at least initially. But on the other hand, I see the play does compare him on a couple of occasions to Hector, and I see why that comparison is there too, and drama key, right? The um, social connection between Hector and his wife and his child uh, is a very moving scene from the Iliad. Now, one of the things Hector says is that um, this is not in my nature. I was trained uh, to be the warrior that I am. So there is something reluctant in Hector that is not... Uh, reluctant in Achilles. And yeah, it's just interesting to think about um, whether that reluctance is in Coriolanus as well. Maybe it's uh, the thing that we only see right at the end, as I think Lise was suggesting. Um, so why don't we try this? Can we talk a little bit more about Coriolanus's love life? Because that's the part where I think uh, I need to be more persuaded um, that that side of him is fully developed. Um, we've said that he calls his wife his silence, um, and that might indicate that he wants uh, to keep something about their relations private. Uh, we notice that she resists going outside and being seen in public when he's out of the city fighting. So it looks like she agrees with him that there's something that they have that should be kept private. Um, is there more that we can say about Coriolanus's uh, erotic side that would flesh that out? More about her, I think, the name. Her name, of course, incorporates the poet's name, Virgil, um, mm -hmm. who writes of how uh, Aeneas, after the Trojan War, after Troy falls, um, escapes to found Rome, right? So um, Shakespeare's obviously calling on that by her name, um, but also suggesting her, I guess, poetic sensibility, which, which, um, and he loves, he seems to love her. So that also says something about him. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, let me just cycle around a little bit. I also wonder whether the reference to Hector, uh, it, it's true that it may be that he has been trained to be something that he's not by nature, although he looks pretty fierce, but certainly his, his mother talks about, she's, she's clearly a, a force and has, uh, um, cultivated, his warrior side, but I also wonder whether it might be Shakespeare indicating or suggesting by means of other characters that honor is very important to him. You know, so Hector, when he goes out to fight at Troy, basically says, I, uh, this is what I am. If I don't go and fight, people will look at me and I won't uh, and, and say, you know, I'm a coward. I didn't do enough to try save my, my family or my city and I'll be destroyed. Um, mm -hmm. it's complicated in the case of Coriolanus because uh, he does what I guess I would call an Alcibiades move when he joins the enemy. Um, so, right. so, so Hector is not sufficient to explain that. Um, 
But to cycle back around to his wife, yeah, I would want to note her name and the the fortitude with which she resists a prolonged scene where she just keeps constantly getting badgered to to leave the house and she she just she does stick to her guns over and over again right and is compared to Penelope which then suggests that in some way Coriolanus might also incorporate something about Odysseus right mm-hmm. well then you know can we look at at five three and kind of the embassy to Coriolanus here I think this is where it is, right? This is where Volumnia and um, Virgilia show up. Yeah, that's to right. To talk to Coriolanus about what's going on. And Volumnia does most of the talking, which I, I take to be another play on names where she is voluminous <laughs> in the amount that she talks. In every scene, her lines go on and on and on. Um, and Virgilia doesn't really talk very much. Um but somehow this this sways Coriolanus, right? Somehow this kind of changes his mind, um, and I, I'm not really sure why. I'm not really sure, you know, what what was what was the key parts of this scene that that changed Coriolanus's mind. Well, I can read what Coriolanus says. Um, that might be a, a good uh, starting place here. So I'm going to read from Act Five, Scene Three, starting around uh, 182. Um, uh, Coriolanus's mother has just concluded her final speech, and Coriolanus says, O mother, mother, what have you done? Behold, the heavens do ope, the gods look down, and this unnatural scene they laugh at. O my mother, mother, O, you have won a happy victory to Rome, but for your son, believe it, O believe it, most dangerously you have with him prevailed if not most mortal to him. But let it come. Ophidius, though I cannot make true wars, I'll frame convenient peace. Now, good Ophidius, were you in my stead, would you have heard a mother less or granted less, Ophidius? And Ophidius is very <laughs> unsupportive. I was moved with all, right? It's all that he can bring himself to say. So yeah, uh, it's an unnatural scene uh, is almost all that he gives us in terms of what he's seeing or hearing at the moment that he seems to decide. So what, what do we make of that? Yeah, there, um, two points. One, back to Brian's observation about Virgilia in this scene. Her main appeal is to the private life, right? That we, we brought this child into the world, you are my husband, but particularly through the boy. And then the, his mother, it's very much about um, honor, and shame, um, and that's true. That that's the thing that gets him to. Well, her speech speeches move him. Is it is it because he's um, honor is so important to him, or is it that uh, seeing one's mother on her knees begging you to do something actually appeals to a private? side and so these two things converge the private and the public and that speech is successful so i guess i i was initially thinking there might be mutually exclusive concern for honor on the one hand and then the heart on the other with your mother kneeling but it could be that the heart moves him to to do the thing that she that the mother speaks of in terms of honor but in fact it is not the honor that move that motivates him and then, of course, another possibility is that they aren't mutually exclusive, but 
Um, I think it's, I think it's the mother on her knees that's that really destroys him. And it appeals to that civil military, you know, concept that Jeff opened with, right? That on the civil side you have the home and hearth, the wife and child, and there's something there that says if I destroy Rome, I potentially destroy this family. And then you have the military side where, you know, Volumnia around 135, 140, um, you know, the wars, the end of war is uncertain, but this certain that if thou conquer Rome, the benefit which thou shalt thereby reap is such a name, his repetition will be dogged with curses, whose chronicle thus writ, the man was noble, but with his last attempt, he wiped it out, destroyed his country, and his name remains to the ensuing age abhorred. Mm-hmm. So... Because what Jeff read only speaks to the mother, right? Oh, mother, oh, mother. Um, It doesn't mention Virgilia, right? It doesn't mention, you know, the the idea of, of of his civil life, of his family life as the motivator. He mentions what his mother said. It, you know, he might be moved by Virgilia's um, presence, um, but it's Volumnia's speech on honor and that really that he says sways him but is it this is it is sorry is it the speech though or is it or is it the sentiment so yeah so let's just look again it's it's as you point out mother mother the repetition and then he jumps over the city to the gods right the gods look down at this monstrous scene they laugh at Mm mm-hmm yeah, and I guess what we're supposed to be seeing here, judging by the indications in the text, is that Coriolanus has stood up, but the three, and I guess there's um, uh, Valeria as well, so there, there are four people present, but the, the three that are essential are the son, the mother, and the wife are all kneeling to him. And so there it looks like uh, what you would see, um, and maybe it's uh, a comedy for the gods, but a, a tragedy for us is that, um, you know, the 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 woman who gave birth to Coriolanus, the woman he married, I guess for the sake of offspring, right? That's the thing that's stressed, and then the offspring itself are all subordinating themselves to him, right? So if we just look visually at it, maybe the thing that's unnatural about it is that he realizes that the military virtue is for the sake of something else. Right? It, it is not its own justification. He's not a machine. Right? He came from somewhere and he's headed somewhere. Now, the gods might laugh because they don't take being somebody's child seriously and they don't take seriously having children either. Right? So they might think, oh, humans, you have these ties that messes everything up and look how uh, bad Coriolanus' situation is for having had these ties. But he himself seems to be acknowledging them, I'd say. Um, now, I don't know exactly how that impinges on a question of honor, but it does seem to kind of um, vault over the public-private distinction, right? He can't sack Rome without killing his family, right? So the two things are brought together for him, I think, there. Yeah, that's helpful. I watched, um, I've seen it before, but I watched for the podcast the Ray Fiennes version of this, which is which is excellent. He does an excellent job there. Yeah. but. Um, if one hasn't seen it live and ha- one has seen at least that version, I think it's true that this is the painful scene. When Coriolanus says that, mother, mother, what have you done? That is that is painful. So I think we, 
might be able to flesh out our interpretation by thinking about why that's the case. I mean, it really does move us. So what are we feeling when Shakespeare manipulates us that way? And I think it is what you said, Jeff, that it's uh, behind the talk of honor um, is the fact that this is your mom, and now she's begging you, and uh, that ought not to happen. <laughs> yeah, I guess the contrast that were suggested uh, or were uh, recommended to make by Shakespeare is between that and what Menenius does. Right, And again, we have this question of the efficacy of the kinds of words that he mobilizes. Right, He comes and tries to make his case to Coriolanus, and Coriolanus doesn't really let Menenius get under his skin. Um, but uh, contrary to that, it looks like some combination of the words and the look of the thing when the wives and, and the child arrive, the wife, the child, and, and the mother arrive, uh, is what finally does uh, move him. So uh, again, I'd say, you know, there's, there's no doubt that in this play, as in a lot of other settings, um, words are necessary to um, uh, make the body politic hold together and work together as one. But again, I think there's some uh, doubt about the power of words, at least the kind of words that Menenius has at his disposal. Um, I think that might be a, a good time to kind of wrap it up. We're about a time here. Um... I just want to just put a quick plug in any of our listeners' ears that are kind of coming at this fairly new to Shakespeare. Um, it's okay to not understand what the heck is going on. <laughs> it's actually part of the reason my my uh, my application essay to St. John's was built around uh, reading Hamlet in high school and not understanding anything the Player King was talking about yeah. in his in his first speech when he arrives at Elsinore. And just going, I need to understand this because I, I feel like this is probably important to the play. But who who is Priam? Like who is this guy? You know. Um, and so it's it's okay if you're reading through this and you get to the end and you go, what what's going on? Like I I don't understand this. And that's kind of part of the reason why we you know choose these kinds of uh, readings in combat and classics into St. John's is. Uh, they are they are bottomless as far as the the questions that you can ask and uh, the different angles that you can approach it. So even if you come to dramatically different conclusions uh, or even have dramatically different questions than the ones we touched on today, that's that's okay. You can do that. That's part of the fun. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> uh, so thank you, Lise. Thank you, Jeff, um, for uh, for another great pod. And uh, anything else you guys want to add? That's Nothing good. for Thanks. now. Read Coriolanus again. <laughs> Read Coriolanus again. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Brian. Thank it's you, Brian. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Mm -hmm.